Welcome back to Whiskey and Lemon. I'm Lana Mercedes, and today we are talking all about the Stanford Prison Experiment. I briefly touched on this study in a previous episode, but now we are really going to dive in here. All right, so let's set the scene in Stanford, California. It's a CDP, Census Designated Place. It's nestled into the northern corner of Santa Clara County, just west of Palo Alto. It's roughly 2.7 square miles with a population of under 23,000. It's 20 miles northwest of San Jose and about 35 miles southeast of San Francisco. And in 1968, psychologist Philip Zimbardo begins working at Stanford. He procures this research team. Curtis Banks, David Yaffe, Craig Haney, and ex-convict consultant Carlo Prescott. Prescott introduces Zimbardo and the rest of the team to other ex-convicts so that they could hear from them what it's like to live in a prison. They're interested in studying the American prison system. They want to find out whether the brutality that guards inflicted on inmates was situational or dispositional. Fritz Heider defines situationism as the view that our behavior and actions are determined by our immediate environment and surroundings, while dispositionism holds that our behavior is determined by internal factors, such as personality traits or temperament. They wanted to see if subjects considered to be physically and psychologically healthy would alter their behaviors when placed in a prison-like setting. And with this study, they would obviously be aware of their participation in said experiment. Would the prisoners and guards be more prone to conflict in this environment? Would the prisoners become irritable and defy law and order? Would the guards become hostile when and if the prisoners defy authority? What else would occur? In the summer of 1971, the team designed and conducted a social psychology experiment in the basement of Stanford's psychology department. They advertised their need for subjects, men that would commit to the two-week experiment. There were over 70 applicants. They were given diagnostic interviews and personality tests to eliminate anyone that they deemed had psychological issues, medical disabilities, a history of drug abuse, or a criminal background. The 24 men determined to be the most physically and psychologically healthy were chosen for the experiment. They were also considered to be the most mature and least likely to have social anxiety. They were all unfamiliar with one another and were offered $15 per day to participate. The entire experiment was to be observed and recorded by the research team. There were no windows or clocks anywhere. The researchers wanted the ability to keep track of time to be unattainable. The mock prison included six by nine foot cells with three cots to hold three prisoners per unit. Laboratory doors were replaced with steel bars and cell numbers. There were other rooms designated for the warden and guards, a small room to be used as the prison yard, and a closet for solitary confinement two by two feet and just about seven feet tall. Dark and confining and referred to as the hole. The prisoners were treated just as such. They were arrested without warning, most of them from their homes. They were taken to the local police station, fingerprinted and photographed. They were blindfolded and transported to the mock prison. By the flip of a coin, the men were randomly assigned to be either a guard or prisoner. Upon arrival, the prisoners' personal possessions were taken and locked away. They were stripped down naked, sprayed to insinuate they were dirty and filled with lice. They were provided showers and their prison uniforms, denied the opportunity to wear underclothes with them. The prisoners were to wear a chain padlocked to their ankle and a stocking cap on their head to mimic a shaved head. The prisoners were to be de-individualized, so from this moment on, they were referred to only by their ID number. The guards also had uniforms, 
but they were provided batons and mirrored sunglasses to prevent prisoners from connecting with them on any type of human level. Then there was the yard. The prisoners were allowed to mingle in this area, eat, exercise, and down the hall there was a restroom for them to use. Blindfolded. Yep, blindfolded. This was enforced so that the prisoners could not get a good look around the area and know how to escape. The guards would work in groups of three per shift. After their shifts, they were able to return home as if it was a normal job. The guards weren't given any formal training on how to be guards. They were free to pretty much do whatever they thought was necessary to establish and maintain law and order and to enforce the respect of the prisoners. Zimbardo expressed that they were to uphold the environment of oppression. The guards were informed that they would have complete power over the prisoners, but that they were not to use physical violence at all. So, the guards made up their own set of rules, which they implemented under the supervision of David Hafe, who I mentioned earlier in this episode, an undergraduate from Stanford University and who also played the role of the warden. The guards, however, were warned of potential dangers that might take place by going too far. And within a few hours, all hell breaks loose, and the prisoners revolt. Stay tuned for part two next Wednesday. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can find me at Mercedes on Instagram to submit your questions and topic suggestions. 